Um, welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us um, for our panel discuss discussion today, Germany after Merkel. My name is Arabelle Liebold, and I'm the director of the Goethe Pop-Up in Seattle. That's a temporary branch of Germany's Goethe Institute here in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, we are very happy um, to um, bring this event uh, today together um, to you with our wonderful partners, the University of Washington Center for West European Studies and also Department of German Studies, whom I would like to thank for their hard work and their support in making events like these happen. It's always a pleasure to work together with them. So 60 years of Angela Merkel, um, there are some Germans that are now actually young adults who cannot consciously remember any other head of government than Angela Merkel. Uh, but even for those of us who do, I think it's very hard to imagine how Germany and actually also how Europe and the entire world will look without her. Um, our three wonderful panelists um, today will help us to assess the outcome of the recent German elections and also help us to maybe understand how a Germany after Merkel could look like. Um, I have to say an hour is not a lot to discuss the future of an entire country, um, but to quote Angela Merkel here, wir schaffen das, we can do it. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Before we dive right into the keynotes and the discussion, I would like to take a minute just to let everyone know, you probably heard it when you logged in, this meeting will be recorded and will be made available later on through our Vimeo platform. And um, we will share the link with all of you through the Eventbrite email addresses um, that we received. Um, although you, our audience, will be muted at all times and also invisible. Um, just uh, know and please feel highly encouraged to enter your questions at any time um, in the little Q&A box that you see at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, and we will make sure to get to as many questions as possible in the last quarter um, of our webinar. And um, hopefully then, um, yeah, can somehow get to the other questions as well. But um, it is now my pleasure to introduce today's host. Um, that is Sabine Lang, director of the Center of West European Studies at the University of Washington, and also chair of the European Studies Program. Um, Sabine Lang is sort of a Merkel expert herself. She recently, for those of you who don't know, co-authored an opinion piece in the Washington Post um, that takes a deep dive into looking at Merkel's legacy on gender equality. For, so for those of you who are interested, we will later share the link. I can highly recommend that article. But for now, um, it's a pleasure to hand over to Sabine to guide us through today's panel discussion, and I'll see you all later. Thank you. Thank you very much, Annabelle, and I can give the greetings right back. It's always a pleasure to work with the Goethe pop-up here in Seattle. We are really very, very happy to have it in town. And uh, I would also like to welcome you to a conversation that uh, spans 16 years of Angela Merkel's tenure. Um, what we want to do in the next hour with you is go through Merkel's legacy in the context of what just has happened, namely German elections on Sunday, September 26th, eight days ago, the German um, citizens voted. And um, this election does not just represent a watershed moment for Germany and Europe because of what Forbes and others termed the most powerful woman in the world stepping down, um, I think it's also a watershed moment because what we see is that the traditional post-war constellation of sogenannte Volkspartei, those catch-all centrist parties in Germany, has given way to a multi-party system that is more equalized and allows in the future for 
many more um, and probably also more difficult coalition formation and uh, we'll definitely address this a little bit today. Um, first off, let me start with some really good news about this election. Um, the first piece of good news, I think for me at least, is voter turnout. Um, what we had discussed in uh, the, the political science field, also in the media for many years now, the, the, the apathy, the, the fact that people are increasingly not willing to go to the polls has really been proven wrong in this election. 76% of eligible Germans voted, and this is strong um, by European standards and definitely internationally. Second piece of good news I'd like to share uh, is that what we also feared, namely more increases in right-wing extreme, extremist positions has not materialized. The alternative for Germany, the AfD, the ultra-right-wing party lost 2.3% um, and is now at 10.3% uh, in the next Bundestag. Um, so they haven't gone away, but at least they did not increase their share. And the third and final piece of good news is that this Bundestag overall will be younger and it will be more female again. Uh, in the Social Democratic Party alone, 56 of those parliamentarians in this next Bundestag um, are younger than 40 and 25% are even 30 or younger. So in my view, that is a real game changer and good news. The winner of this election, most of you will know that, uh, is clearly the Social Democratic Party, a party that just a few months ago polled only at barely 14 or 15 percent and now won an astonishing victory with 26.7 percent of the vote, um, most likely will form a what we call traffic coalition, a red, um, yellow, green coalition with the Liberals and the Greens. Merkel's own party, the CDU, um, on the other hand, experienced quite a stunning defeat with only 18.9% of the vote, uh, losing almost 8% compared to two, 2017. And their chancellor candidate and Merkel's heir apparent, um, Armin Laschet, um, right now appears to be under a lot of pressure to step aside for some younger reformers in the party. And then, of course, there's the Green Party with their chancellor candidate, Annalena Baerbock. Um, the Green Party that, while um, suffering from some campaign mismanagement issues and potentially also uh, from sexism, I'm just throwing this out as at our speakers here, that Green Party that ultimately did not reach the numbers that they were projected to reach, but they still got the best result ever in their participation in the federal elections with 14.8%. So what all this means, uh, we will now discuss uh, in the next hour with three experts on German politics, who I'm really glad could make time to be with us today. I will introduce them as they speak. And um, I think we'll start with a look at Angela Merkel's legacy, what that legacy means for domestic politics primarily, then we'll move more specifically to climate change and energy policy and end with an assessment of Merkel's legacy and the election um, in terms of European and transatlantic affairs. 
So it is my pleasure to start introducing the first speaker, Professor Joyce Mooshaben. Joyce Mooshaben is an affiliate faculty member at the BMW Center for German and European Studies at Georgetown University. And she also works closely with the European feminist think tank, Gender 5 Plus. She recently retired as the Curator's Distinguished Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Missouri and St. Louis. And she recently published a book called Becoming Madam Chancellor, Angela Merkel and the Berlin Republic, which makes her a perfect speaker to segue into this hour's discussion. Joyce, thank you very much for being with us and over to you. Thank you for the extraordinary hospitality, figuratively as well as literally. And let me just start with three election observations of my own. This is the first time in post-war German history that no incumbent was running for political office. So that contributed to some of the chaos in the early period of the campaign as to whom the chancellor candidate, particularly for the Christian Democrats, should be. Secondly, as already stressed, this was for first time voters, for anyone under the age of 2021, the first time that Merkel would not be one of the candidates for the chancellorship, uh, they had to come to terms with the fact that it might be a man who could actually be chancellor of the Federal Republic. And the fact that they have only grown up with Angela Merkel, I think also contributed to the kind of chaotic struggle for the candidacy within the CDU party itself. Now that brings me then to the CDU loss. I think we need to keep in mind that many of the policies that Merkel's various governments have introduced have served the purpose of modernizing the CDU per se. The CDU is now a party that accepts the necessity for reconciliation policies, childcare to allow women to engage in paid employment. And so I think a lot of the voters at this point decided that if they were going for parties that supported this, they may as well go for parties like the SPD or the Greens who supported that long ago, rather than having just come into that particular fold. I think it also helped to eat away at the AFD strength because you might recall in 2017, one of the AFD slogans was Merkel muss weg, do away, get rid of Angela Merkel. And if she's no longer running for the chancellorship, then they lost some of their voters, or at least they had people who no longer turned out to vote because one of their causes was gone. Now, I have spent a lot of time living in Germany, but I do consider myself sometimes uh, an outsider. And that allows me to see big differences in the 70s and 80s and 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s that I have spent moving in and out of Germany. So what I'm going to highlight in terms of the Merkel legacy are what I think are really very significant structural changes. And then we can come back later in the discussion to what still needs to be done. First and foremost, we have to address the question of the energy turnaround. You might recall some of you that Merkel won the designation of the climate chancellor back in 2007 at the, when she hosted the G20 summit meeting in Heiligendamm. And then there were many new laws and policies that were adopted by her first grand coalition between 2008 all the way up to 2011 actually, 
that introduced and accelerated this energy turnaround. So when Fukushima happened in 2011, I think Germany was already very well positioned to make a shift to renewables and Merkel's key decision then to leave the nuclear energy field just substantiated a lot of the things that Greens and, and the SPD had been lobbying for all along. Energy turnaround, the renewable energy, climate change is clearly now an issue for all of the parties, of uh, the mainstream parties. Merkel was very influential in bringing about the Lisbon Treaty after the failed uh, constitutional initiative in, at the EU level. And the Lisbon Treaty introduced a number of new mechanisms that even give the national parliaments a little bit more control or input into some of these policies, the yellow card, the red card, we need not go into that. So she has had also an effect on the structural components and decision-making processes at the EU level. Gender politics is clearly a big area with the assistance of Ursula von der Leyen. Merkel would never take credit herself personally for all of these policies. There is now the childcare guarantee down to the age of one, although there may not be enough facilities for all these children who would like to claim their right to subsidize childcare or, or assist various forms of childcare. They have introduced the concept of paternity leave for the first time. And the share of men who are now taking advantage of this has risen from 3% in 2009 to over 36% by 2016. Now, what this means is that Merkel's policies are starting to change the roles of men. And I think that's what we're really gonna need in order to achieve gender equality. Germany's experiencing its first baby boom since the late 1960s. And 71% of all German women are now engaged in paid employment. That's the highest rate for Germany as a whole in its post-war history. 67% of the mothers are engaged in full in paid employment. So this really is a paradigm shift. But Merkel has also helped to level the gender playing field, politically speaking. She was very proud of the fact that 50% of the department heads in the federal chancellor's office itself are now women. And as Sabina has already pointed out, this election has seen the highest number of candidates both under the age of 35 and one of the largest percentages of female candidates in general, which helps to explain why more women have been elected. So I think her 16 years of power have clearly given women across the political spectrum a sense that they can succeed in politics and many more are attempting to do so. The Euro crisis was not viewed as one of her finer moments, but I think that's because she didn't understand a lot about EU finance and who understood toxic debt swaps back in 2008. And yet she held out for structural change in exchange for so-called German bailouts of these debtor countries. She did get a stability mechanism out of that and then eventually brought the Germans to the point where they accepted the introduction of Euro bonds in conjunction with the Corona crisis. And that is also a major paradigm shift in the structures of EU financing and its ability to deal with crises of this magnitude at some future date. Migration, asylum, but most importantly, her proactive integration policies. There have been many changes in German law that kicked in in relation to asylum, residency rights, changes in the 
the, the citizenship law for children of third generation of migrant descent who no longer have to go through this rigorous process of trying to hang on to their German citizenship as of 2014. But the positive proactive approach to integration, integration implementation, integration implementation monitoring is a fundamental change in the German views. You might recall Helmut Kohl's favorite statement, Germany's not a land of immigration. Germany has become a land of not only immigration, but it is much more of a welcoming culture than it was at the time Angela Merkel first assumed office in 2005. This also relates to citizenship issues and youth, but we can save that for the discussion. Now, Corona has obviously put a damper on many of the initiatives and many of, of the new policies affecting women in the paid workplace, for example. But I, I do think it's quite telling that by 2018, Angela Merkel, who never wanted to call herself a feminist, came out and called for gender parity. And now there's been a bit of a brouhaha because people are saying, well, she finally did say she's a feminist. And I think that is because she is looking back at 16 years of modernizing the CDU, of modernizing the gender regime and saying, well, I have made my contribution to gender equality and therefore it doesn't matter if you wanna call me one of these, that's fine. As to what lies ahead, clearly Merkel has not been 100% successful. She's not always been consistent uh, in adhering to many of the conditions for the energy turnaround, uh, the reluctance to really put the automobile industry on a short leash. Many people are saying now she's done almost nothing in her last four years. I disagree with that because I simply think that these structures had to be first put firmly in place and now it's up to the politicians who follow to fill that space with other policy initiatives. So I will end here simply by saying, all right, the energy turnaround clearly in the foreign policy domain, the world is going to miss her and there are a few people who can fill her shoes or keep Putin in line, for example. But I would, instead, I would say now that instead of her favorite motto, wir schaffen das, we can argue, sie hat's geschafft, she managed to get a lot of these things done. So thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Joyce. Um, I have to start my video. Here we go. Thank you very much. And uh, after wir schaffen das, uh, there's a big question mark now, do we, make it without her, schaffen wir das ohne sie. Um, I think the points that you hit um, are, are valid and will be part of the government negotiation and coalition negotiation as they um, emerge now. So let's turn to our second speaker, our second speaker is Sarah Lohman. Um, Sarah is a acting assistant professor at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies and a visiting professor at the US Army War College. She's currently a co-lead for a NATO project on energy security in an era of hybrid warfare. Previously, she served as the senior cyber fellow with the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins. And Sarah will help us understand today the impact of Merkel's departure and the election on energy security and also climate change policy. Welcome, Sarah, and over to you. Thank you so much, Sabina, and thank you 
to you and to Arabelle from the Good to Pop Up for having me here today. Um, what I'd like to look at is um, the energy policy trajectories and how they are impacting foreign and security policy. And if you just want to go on to the next slide. On the next slide, you'll see a few. These are a few posters that were in my neighborhood in Munich. Um, just in the last uh, weeks ahead of the election. So on the left there, um, climate policy, just taking a walk through climate policy on the right um, for a clean environment and honest policy of politics. Um, and then the wind forms that you see everywhere around Germany. So this is, this is what it looks like um, in, in my backyard. But I wanna talk about why energy security and climate change we're on the top uh, three issues in the election campaign. And that's not just because the Greens had historically high support, but also because um, while Europe and Germany in particular transitions to renewables and dependence on green energy, um, this has big consequences for the average household in Germany. And those are already being felt. The costs for the energy transition have been passed on to the public. So right now that means the $38 billion for green electricity last year was paid for by German households directly in taxes and fees that make up 50% of the power tab. Um, so that makes Germany the country with the most expensive electricity prices in the EU. But before I get into what the potential coalition combinations could mean for energy, and for security and foreign policy, I want to talk about why energy policy formed so much of that election uh, season. As Joyce just mentioned, this energy transition has been a long time coming. So we saw that shift after Fukushima when um, Merkel made that famous decision to phase out nuclear. But I want to put this in context of what's happening across the continent as well. The European Commission had already decided on the Green Deal in 2019 which means uh, reducing emissions. And so that EU climate law passed in June of this year and made the goal of reducing emissions by 55% um, up to the year of 2030, that made that legally binding. So Germany is well on its way and this is having consequences today. So that means Germany concrete, in order to have climate neutrality um, and in order for emissions to be reduced, it has to switch out the sources of energy that it's using um, from dirty sources like coal and oil um, to renewable sources like wind and solar. But on top of that, it also agreed to phase out nuclear energy, which doesn't produce emissions. So the problem right now that they're facing is that when coal and nuclear are phased out, there's going to be a huge energy shortfall. Um, so when the last nuclear reactor is turned off next year, there's going to actually be a gap of 4.5 gigawatts or the equivalent of what 10 large coal to power generation plants would provide. A German federal audit found earlier this year that Germany is actually at heightened risk of blackouts due to that energy shortfall and the grid is quite unstable. So that is set to start within the next few months. Uh, this winter actually and to last for the next four years until technology catches up. So what do Germany's uh, energy shortfalls actually have to do with foreign policy? In terms of the grid and pipelines, it's one networked continent. 
So with the grid even more vulnerable due to those shortages, cyber war aimed at Germany's grid could be very successful right now. If you go on to the next slide. All right, so here you see the Nord Stream um, gas pipeline. In terms of gas, Germany has a decision to make as it thinks about its neighbors. So while um, Germany did decide to allow the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and that has been completed, because it urgently needs gas, EU law prevents companies like Gazprom, the, the Russian company, from both owning the pipeline and supplying the gas. So if, if you look closely at the graphic in the middle, Nord Stream 2 runs off the coast of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. The countries um, are actually concerned right now, not only about competition and supply, but also that Russia will use its presence there to gain military and geopolitical power. Now, what we had happen in August was that the European Court of Justice uh, ruling made clear that energy solidarity rules apply legally and politically. So Germany is now being asked what a good neighbor policy would look like, um, but it could face gas shortages if it hesitates. So if it's more dependent on Russia for gas, it could weaken NATO as an alliance if there is friction with those countries I just mentioned, but if it doesn't import the gas, it may have shortages. The Greens are being very consistent on this topic. They're being strong in their stance that such partnerships with Russia should not be entered into, um, whereas the Social Democrats have fostered the relationship with Russia for gas in the past, and Merkel's Christian Democrats have taken a very pragmatic approach. Um, and I will say that's been both with Russia and China. Um, in some cases, if uh, that has been something that's met Germany's needs, there have been partnerships with both countries. Okay, if you move on to the next slide. Thanks, okay, so these are the coalitions being talked about right now. As already mentioned, most of the focus is on the traffic light coalition, so-called because it is red, green, and yellow. Um, so the Social Democrats, um, along with the uh, Free Democrats and the Greens, and so let's talk about what this energy policy and its impact on foreign and security policy has to do with Germany's parties. So the Greens whose platform has focused on green energy policy are going to have a lot more to say about Germany's future, no matter which coalition comes out of the negotiations. Their focus has been on renewables, but they've been adamantly against the Nord Stream 2 um, pipeline and against partnering with Russia, as I just mentioned. On the other hand, they've been very forward-leaning on getting rid of nuclear energy immediately. And until Germany's technology catches up in about four years, that choice to cut off nuclear energy from within the country will mean lack of energy supply to the grid. So um, there are solutions that have not yet been worked out on that. So again, thinking about a coalition led by the Social Democrats, if they're willing to work with the Greens on their forward-leaning green energy platform, which it looks like they are, um, the thing they will have to work out is they've also been advocates of Gazprom and Russian gas in the past. So they'll have to come to a uh, common agreement on how to face that issue. Um, they'll need to come to terms with basically what they're willing to sacrifice on that front. And um, they'll also need to come to agreement that NATO will need to remain strong against uh, the advances into the energy field of both 
China, which has been more focused on the grid supply chain end, and Russia on the gas end. So those are, those are things that are being negotiated right now. Um, and if, if the coalition comes together, they'll need to have answers to that up front. Um, the other coalitions, and I will just mention the other two that have been discussed. Uh, the negotiations aren't over till it's over, as we learned uh, several years back. The Christian Democrats uh, brought the question of affordability to the table during the campaign season. We saw that in, in each of the uh, TV um, duels between the candidates. And, and this was brought up again and again, but it really remained unanswered in terms of the details. So current politics um, basically has both electricity and gas prices through the roof in Germany. The question is really how long the average household will stand for that, especially if the grid is repeatedly subject to blackouts this winter. Um, so a coalition led by the CDU would hopefully address that green energy affordability um, but a coalition including the FDP and the Greens would also have to have a common stance against partnerships with Russia and in support of NATO, both on the energy side and also in terms of defense spending. Now, I hesitate to even mention this because it's highly unlikely. Um, in the past, the CDU and SPD have said they are um, firmly against a grand coalition. They've said that before and had to bite their words. So I'm just mentioning it in that slight chance. Um, that, that that could actually happen. A grand coalition could be expected to be pragmatic on energy, um, fulfilling Germany's gas and electricity needs with, with basically partners of convenience um, and probably not as hard of a line on Russia and a government that's open to new trade and diplomatic partners. So whichever coalition is negotiated in the next few day, uh, next days and weeks will determine not only how quickly Germany transitions to green energy and creates affordable energy, but also how it interacts with its partner across NATO and creates security across the continent. And with that, I pass it back to you, Christina. Thank you very much. Sarah for this somewhat bleak assessment, but uh, nonetheless, we like realism and uh, the fact that we could see um, energy blackouts this winter um, is certainly something that the German public will not take lightly. Um, I think we will get back to that in the Q&A, definitely. So let me um, please start uh, introducing our third speaker before we bring the audience in uh, with more questions. Our third speaker is Christiane Lemke. Professor Lemke is currently a visiting scholar in the Transatlantic Master's Program at UNC in Chapel Hill. Uh, she's also just retired as Professor of Political Science at the Leipzig University in Hanover, uh, where she was the director of the Jean Monnet Center of Excellence. And from 2010 to 2014, she held the Max Weber Chair in German Politics at New York University. She is also the editor of the, a series on Europe as a political space uh, with Lit Publishing and um, is a keen observer of European politics and transatlantic relations. So Christiane will give us her take on what these elections mean for Europe and for the US 
German relations. Thanks for being with us, Christiane. Great. Thank you so much, Sabine, uh, for inviting me and uh, Arabella. Uh, both of you did a great job putting on what I think is a fascinating um, event. And uh, I would like to uh, address in my presentation the European implications. I have a PowerPoint, which uh, if you could please show the uh, first slide here. Um, Okay, uh, if we can move to the next slide. Um, I have three points I would like to address. I would first um, like to speak briefly about the election results in the European context in comparison to other European countries. I will then uh, talk about the significance of foreign policy as a policy field in the elections. And my last uh, point will be on future perspectives for European policy and foreign relations. So if we could please um, see the next slide. Um, the election results in European context, um, Sabine uh, and Joyce um, addressed the election results and described uh, what came out of these elections. I would like to argue that uh, when we compare Germany to other countries, there are a lot of things uh, Germany now has in common with other European democracies. For example, the increasing voter volatility that a lot of people were not decided, um, about 16% uh, right uh, before election day did not know which party they would vote for. There is great movement between the parties from away from the CDU to the Social Democrats and so on. So this is something we observe in many other European countries as well. Also the decline of the so-called old parties, the established parties, the Volksparteien, uh, as Sabine rightly said, uh, this is something we saw in other countries as well, the decline of the Social Democratic Party, even disappearance of uh, social democratic parties and uh, Christian democratic parties. So Germany is here following kind of the model, um, the rise of a new cleavage along uh, the um, ecology issue, but also the rise of the new right, uh, the far right AfD. Um, so this is something uh, to think about why um, all these developments characterize all European democracies, more or less. Um, we already talked about the multi-party coalition that is new in German history. You need three parties to form a stable government. Germany is not fond of, my, uh, of minority governments, uh, so uh, you will need three parties. Negotiations are ongoing, as we just heard. Um, what I find striking about the election outcome that Germans voted for change, that is very clear, uh, but also for stability in, in as much as they supported the Social Democrats as kind of the successor, one can almost say, of Angela Merkel's uh, policy and the CDU. Um, the extreme right, the extreme left, um, 
lost votes. So there is really a crowding in the center. If we could please turn to the next slide. Um, the significance of foreign policy in elections. And this is actually a puzzle here. When you study the party manifestos, and we looked at all of the major parties, you see that uh, foreign policy and European policy figures prominently in the party programs. You have the CDU, CSU moving foreign policy to the front of their manifesto. Uh, and uh, this first point actually covers 45 pages. Uh, so quite, you know, detailed. Social Democrats um, also uh, talk a lot about foreign and European policy in their manifesto, um, about um, 10 uh, pages. And the Green Party as well has a long section on international uh, politics on European policy. Um, the FDP very detailed. However, when you then look at the campaign uh, before the elections, uh, there is a low salience of foreign policy issues in these elections, despite the fact that foreign policy actually has some very hot topics. If you speak about the temperature of polit uh, politics here, very hot topics, uh, several of them were mentioned, the Nord Stream 2 issue, Russia, China, and the disaster of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. All of these topics were discussed widely in Germany over the summer and still in the election campaign and all of the TV debates and debates between candidates, they avoided to speak about foreign policy. And that's actually a very interesting uh, feature. My sense is, and that's just a kind of a, an argument I would like to, to uh, propose, uh, that the uh, major four parties uh, would not gain uh, from um, uh, putting foreign policy first, because CDU and SPD in government right now were actually responsible for some of these problems we are having. Uh, with Nord Stream 2, with Afghanistan withdrawal, with Russia, and so on. And the Greens were also very reluctant to talk about foreign policy because they were, um, uh, and that's my sense, more interested in showing that they were uh, a party covering all domestic policy areas, not just climate, but uh, education, digitalization, e economy, so that they uh, felt that foreign policy would distract from presenting themselves as a full-fledged political party ready to govern. I remember that the Greens were uh, scoring high in spring. Uh, some people uh, and observers were saying, we will have a green chancellor uh, in the fall, that could happen. So they were very eager to present themselves uh, in the governability uh, vein. Um, yeah, as uh, the previous speaker uh, just pointed out very rightly, future perspectives depend highly on which coalition is going to govern and who is going to be the chancellor. And then following from this, who is going to be foreign minister because usually the vice chancellor uh, gets the foreign office. Um, so these are two key positions, the chancellor 
actually Chancellor Merkel uh, shaped European policy greatly herself. But of course, you know, the foreign ministry is an important player here. And depending on whether the Social Democrats, uh, Olaf Scholz will be chancellor or uh, the CDU um, manages to come into the chancellery with Ami Laschet, um, that will really kind of make, make a difference for the um, shaping of foreign policy and European policy. If we can go to the third slide, um, I just wanted to show you here uh, that the uh, main topics of these elections, social security, uh, environment and climate, economy and labor, and uh, the corona pandemic, uh, were the key topics for voters' decision. You notice there is no security or cybersecurity or terrorism or any foreign policy issue is you know, not uh, decisive for, for the um, decision of voters. Okay, um, we now turn to the third point. Um, my, if you can uh, please show the next slide. Um, the future perspectives for European policy and foreign relations. Now to be sure all major parties, uh, all four are pro-European integration, pro-EU, um, no party is proposing to pull out and go alone, uh, but there are different priorities and, and our different policies. Um, the Social Democrats, for example, are calling for a European army uh, and for autonomy of Europe vis-a-vis -vis the United States. That would really have some major uh, consequences. The Free Democrats are likewise calling for a European army for more independence of Europe from the United States and from NATO. Uh, the CDU-CSU uh, basically wants to kind of continue the path on the path we are on. Um, the Greens are very much pro-European integration. I would even say they are the most pro-European integration party. Um, they also take a critical view uh, of NATO and the United States, for example, arguing that the 2% increase for the military budget um, uh, does not make sense, and they want to kind of reinterpret, reread uh, the increase of the military budget and the defense um, capacity of, of Germany. But from my observation, I would say that the Greens are very pro-transatlanticist. Um, but uh, like I say, depending on who is going to be the foreign minister, whether it's Annalena Baerbock or Robert Habeck from the Green Party or uh, Christian Lindner from the Free Democratic Party, depending on the coalition constellation and negotiations, um, uh, will, will really be, you know, make a difference. In terms of policies, uh, there are several major challenges for the future. Um, some have already been pointed out. I think that three points are standing out. Fiscal policy and the positions towards the debt limits. Uh, we know that uh, the EU uh, passing the COVID uh, Recovery and Reconstruction Act last year 
um, uh, said we we will kind of expand the debt ceiling. Uh, we need uh, money right now to help the countries suffering from the COVID pandemic most. Um, so for a period until 2023, there is a more flexible approach to debt limits. However, um, we also know that the Free Democrats strictly insist on going back to very you know, strict uh, limits. And um, uh, uh, you know, this is going to be one of the key issues in Europe and in the EU uh, for the future in Germany plays a major role in all of these policies. Climate change policy, uh, that clearly is a key topic. The EU um, uh, Green Deal was already mentioned and here Germany did not do very well in the past couple of years fulfilling the Paris uh, Agreement goals, uh, moving uh, more um, rigorously towards renewables, uh, the automobile industry is a very, you know, uh, strong lobby in Germany. So there is a lot of catching up to do here in this field. But Germany may not be the major, uh, you know, uh, brakeman here in Europe. Um, if you look at the uh, uh, energy transition in other European countries, um, it's a patchwork. Uh, countries put different priorities on different energies. Um, so there needs to be more coordination moving towards renewable and clean energies in the future. And Germany could play a major role here. In terms of a, a coherent foreign policy, um, that is kind of a Dauerbrenner. That's a permanent kind of uh, topic, a uh, constant topic in, um, in uh, Europe. Uh, and it's very clear that uh, Europe needs to position itself more clearly vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Uh, and um, uh, Russia remains to be a difficult uh, country for Europe because on the one hand, we want good relations um, for energy and trade. On the other hand, uh, there is so much criticism about human rights violations in Russia and the Crimea. Uh, Ukraine, the um, conflict in Ukraine, that uh, here again, Germany will play a key role in shaping this foreign policy in the future. And I would like to close here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christiane, for this encompassing route into European relations. Um, I We'll start my video again. Here we go. Um, so um, I would first off like to encourage our audience here to post questions now. I'm sure that all three fields, domestic, um, energy, climate, and then international relations are prone to having a lot uh, of questions. Um, Post to our speakers. And let me start with um, a couple of things that um, I thought um, as an observer of the campaigns were really missing. Um, I thought that migration was missing as a big topic in this election campaign, not really addressed by any of the major parties in the uh, Triella in the in the uh, chancellor candidates uh, public campaigning. 
Um, maybe that's a question for choice. Why do you think that was? Was that strategic? Um, do parties for different reasons not want to engage with our very, um, you know, shaky deal with Turkey and with uh, the future of migration in the Mediterranean? Um, then a second item that, um, at least for me as an observer, was missing, and this goes probably to Christiane, is that while you're right, all these parties in their platforms and in their general makeup have Europe as a positive DNA, um, still I found the campaigns themselves curiously absent of any EU-related topics. And there, as we all know, there are plenty of them. There's Hungary and Poland, the turn towards illiberalism. Um, there is uh, the question of a common asylum policy in the future. There, there's a lot on the table that was not on the table. So why is that in your opinion? And then uh, third for Sarah, um, that is a question uh, we have in the Q&A that I'm just going to read to you. Um, and that kind of echoes my earlier concern about blackouts. Um, Johanna Soleil is asking, uh, do you believe that German citizens will in fact stand blackouts and um, high energy prices for the entire four years or will the Greens and the new government potentially lose support with the, these new energy policies in place? So what do you expect to come out of your analysis here. So maybe we can start with choice and then go to Christiane and then to Sarah. Well, you will notice that at the end of my presentation, I didn't speak directly to what Germany will have to do or what the new coalition will have to do, but that is because I am firmly convinced that all whoever becomes chancellor understands that most of these major problems are gonna to have to be dealt with in the European framework starting with migration. Now, the, the last big wave of migrants was 2015, 2016. Afghanistan came fairly late in the campaign. And so people have gotten the sense that, okay, things have really calmed down now. So we don't have to worry about it too much. We are concerned, AFD is concerned about it changing. It's the culture, but AFD is, is strongest in the areas that have the fewest people of migration background to begin with. So that's just more of a ploy. But I think that that easily plugs into the climate change issue and all of these other issues. Everybody realizes that from now on, there have to be collective solutions to these problems because they are border transcending. I, I do need to throw in a bit of a corrective though with regard to the emissions, the 55% remissions reduction. That is not yet legally binding in the, the formal primary law sense of the term in the EU. That was the goal that von der Leyen set for her commission and all of her commissioners, but those things have to be first translated into directives. And directives take a long time to negotiate and then the EU sets the goal but the member states will have to find the mechanisms for implementation. So at this point, the commission only has the power of initiative. And so I'd be a little bit careful about sort of saying it's really time and Germans should have done this already because these things are still evolving just because it was a sweeping program doesn't mean that all the mechanisms are in place. Thank you, Joyce, good points. And over to Christiane. 
Um, Europe, yes, um, Europe was in a way missing. On the other hand, um, I think uh, Joyce rightly pointed out that a lot of the um, challenging issues um, are going to be and have to be resolved in the European context. And we saw that during the pandemic very clearly. And let's not forget, we're still in the middle of the pandemic and Europeans are very aware of uh, including Germans, of course, are very aware of what Europe has accomplished in terms of open borders. And all of a sudden, with a pandemic, borders close. You cannot, you know, get to your job in France, living in Germany, or you can, you know, not simply go uh, between Poland and Germany, uh, go to work. All of these um, issues clearly show that Europe has become a quite normal context uh, for us in Germany. At the same time, it's uh, in the way uh, politics is made in, in the European Union, uh, the policies are being passed. It's a very complex issue and very kind of difficult to communicate in an electoral campaign what the EU does, what it should do, what it should not do. Um, so I think uh, the explanation why uh, was Europe uh, absent here in the election campaign was number one, because most parties agree on, yes, we need Europe in the European context to resolve major issues. And number two, um, if you go in too much detail in a TV debate, people will just shut off and say, well, you know, so what? Um, there was one question in the chat I would like to pick up relating to Europe and transatlantic relations. Um, the question was, what do you think will be key topics in transatlantic relations, meaning um, Germany and, and the US? We just started a project on the salience of climate change in the US and in Europe. And I do think uh, from the research that we conducted, there is, you know, a broad public uh, consensus in, uh, in uh, Europe that this should be a global issue addressed uh, with the United States. The return of the US into the Paris Climate Agreement um, was really welcomed in, in Germany um, and other European countries. So climate change policy is a policy area where closer cooperation, closer cooperation is really, um, uh, I would say, on the agenda and could be very productive. Uh, regarding China, there are, um, you know, differences. Um, the U.S. seems to be positioned to see China as a systemic rival and competitor in economics. And here, especially the Germans, would like to see not only economic competition, but also cooperation. I was listening to Sigmar Gabriel from the Social Democratic Party yesterday uh, in a webinar, and he very clearly said, um, uh, Europe and Germany needs to communicate with China and cooperate, especially in areas like, you know, fighting pandemics, climate change. There are many global issues that we need to tackle together. And it could, you know, we, we Germans should not be put in a position to decide either the US or either China or whatever. 
uh, so cooperation, he thought, was important in many areas. Thank you, Christiana, for clarifying. And over to Sarah, the implications of potential blackouts and uh, really steep energy prices as the price for climate change in Germany. It's a great question, and thank you for answer, asking it. Um, what I'm seeing on the ground is I don't think that the population will uh, be placid. I think there will be unrest. I think there will be demonstrations. And um, this specifically due to the high, high prices and the blackouts that we are very likely to see or that the government, um, German government audit uncovered that, that are, are going to be happening within the next few months. I do think that this will put pressure on the German government to augment its nuclear policy. Now that's um, been put into law, but in the short run, there's not really an alternative. In the last um, eight months, coal has been up 35% due to the nuclear phase out. So um, they're already increasing emissions. Um, so, so the challenge remains um, just in the short run until the technology catches up. And, and let's face it, all the um, parties are in agreement that they want this transition to green energy. Um, it's a it's a positive goal. It's a fantastic goal. Unfortunately, the technology is not quite there yet for the grid to function fully. The renewal, the transition to renewables hasn't happened yet. So to pull the plug on nuclear before we're there um, has has created a bit of a math problem. So in the short run, um, I do expect there to be this unrest. Um, they will look for other solutions, whether that is. Um, looking at uh, a legislative process in terms of uh, the, the, what's in place now for the nuclear uh, policy, that could be very, very difficult because it's a very emotional issue among the German public. Um, if they decide not to go that route, um, there will be uh, alternatives. There, there will be, um, then in the short run, increasing coal, which will then once again increase emissions. Right now, electricity production is 10 times more um, uh, you know, producing 10 times more carbon emissions and twice as, as expensive as France, its neighbor, um, which is using nuclear energy right now. So that's just a comparison between the two countries. And if it uh, shuts down the last of the nuclear, we will see that uh, increase in coal, coal consumption and increased reliability on its partners where it is importing nuclear energy um, and, and as well as gas imports to have enough energy to demand. I hope that answered your question. Thank you much. And it uh, also showcases the complexity of this energy vendor, this energy transition that we are about to be witnessing in the next four years. So uh, while we are officially out of time, I hope our speakers are okay with us doing one more round because we have plenty of interesting questions. So just very quickly, um, um, I'll ask Joyce this, uh, the role of the IFD, is the IFD on the upswing still across Germany or has this result uh, of 10% uh, really put a damper on this party overall? So what is its future outlook is one question. Um, another question goes, I think, in the direction of um, of uh, Christiane, um, general 
positions about future outcomes of German foreign policy? Do nations such as Russia, the US and China have preferences in their relations with Germany? And then finally, could you say something about German-American relations more specifically? Um, and, and that's a handful, I'm sorry, but we'll leave it at that for you. And, and uh, Sarah, final question about opposition to the energy vendor. Do you see any wiggle room of what for now seems like it has been clad in policy and it will move forward? Do you see any um, social mobilization that could potentially alter that picture again in Germany? So I think same order choice, if you could start with the IFD. Mm -hmm. That's a profound question that keeps a lot of people awake at night, sometimes me, but then I'm always awake anyway. The AFD has been in double digits since roughly 2016. It is, it managed to make it into all 16 of the lender governments. However, the AFD is known for what it is against as opposed to what it is for. It has taken a sort of obstreperous position even within the Bundestag. And the conditions in the East German states have not improved significantly as a consequence of the AFD having these double digits. If anything, it was the recovery from the 2009 financial crisis, the export boom, the energy boom that has brought millions and billions of euros into Mecklenburg-Vorpommern with the wind turbines, for example. They're producing significantly more energy than they're actually consuming, so they can sell it, they can pass it on to the other states. So the AFD is a party that is against something. The AFD is also a party that has split at least four times. And now with the constitutional surveillance, the, the question of constitutional surveillance of a certain wing of the party, I think that has scared off some of the voters as well. Civil servants, police, members of the military technically cannot vote for a party that is under constitutional surveillance. So I'm kind of hoping that it will go the way of some of these other right-wing populist parties that we've seen in Germany in the past. The NPD came up and went down. The Republikaner came up and went down. The DFAU, the People's Union, went up and down. The Schill Party in Hamburg. There, there's always a place for a kind of fringe protest party. The question is, as long as none of the other mainstream parties are willing to form a coalition with it at the national level, or at this point so far in the Western lender, then it, it has ever less to go on, ever less to offer in its various election campaigns. Thank you. Thank you. Christiane? Um, Putin's nightmare is a green foreign minister. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say the same applies to President Xi Jinping of China. Uh, the Greens have been most outspoken in terms of um, the human rights violations and in the case of China, most outspoken um, in terms of cr crushing the Hong Kong democracy movement and so on and so on. Um, on the other hand, what I think the Russians would, or Putin, I should say, would like to see is some kind of um, status, quo, status quo, just, you know, leave everything the way it is and 
um, the um, uh, experience with the other foreign minister who was a green foreign minister, Joschka Fischer, is that once in office and in government responsibility, the Greens may actually um, adjust or change. Um, but for China, uh, Angela Merkel uh, is a very popular chancellor, very popular because of her pragmatic approach and because there is a lot of trade between China and uh, Germany. Um, in Lower Saxony, we have you know, a large group of Chinese students studying uh, good relations on that level of science and research. And this more pragmatic approach is something you know, the Chinese leadership is hoping for, which uh, either a Chancellor Scholz or a Chancellor Laschet might actually um, uh, continue doing. Um, the US-German uh, relationship is, is very interesting. And I was reading the Transatlantic Trends uh, 2021, the Bertelsmann uh, Foundation in Washington is publishing. What, what worries me is that the younger generation of Germans are very critical with the United States and do not think that the US um, has this leadership role anymore in many policy areas. There is a real kind of growing gap uh, here across the Atlantic. And what we see uh, is in part the influence of the uh, Trump uh, presidency. Um, he was a very unpopular president in Germany, but we also um, see, you know, a growing um, um, kind of uh, a growing perception that Europe has to take care of its own. Um, on the other hand, we have very close relations on the civil society level, on the level of parties, of uh, representatives in both parliaments, very, very close economic relations between the US and Germany. Here in North Carolina, where I am, there are about 150, 150 German companies, and it's, you know, one of the smaller states here, German companies in uh, this uh, state. So these economic relations are kind of the foundation of an ongoing and uh, strong relationship between the US and Germany. Thank you. Yes. Sarah, you get the last word. Okay, so the question in the chat box was, has, was there ever opposition? And the question by Sabina is, is there wiggle room? So I will seek to answer those two aspects of the question in one. Um, a few weeks before Fukushima happened, there was a famous dialogue between Angela Merkel and um, some social Democrats right after she had recertified some nuclear plants in which she was arguing um, for the nuclear plants to, to continue and, and to lengthen their time frame, And she was talking about um, how, you know, this is an answer to the energy challenge and um, we don't have the emissions problem with, um, with the nuclear energy that we have with some of these other sources. Now, Fukushima changed that um, due to um, kind of the, the national response, right? So there was a lot of pressure also politically um, to change the way we viewed a nuclear energy at that point in time. So um, it, was there a huge opposition from the, the public to this Energie Venda? No, there wasn't because, because the way that it was laid out was really 
um, not just nuclear, it was also um, renewables. And this was seen as positive and indeed is positive. What, what wasn't widely explained to the public is this sort of four-year gap um, that's in there. Um, and that, that people have become increasingly knowledgeable about just within the last um, months and, and, and approximately years timeframe, um, looking at where technology needs to catch up. And so I think you will find more investment in bioenergy solutions in hydropower going forward, and that these will create some of uh, the solutions where uh, you know, solar paneling or, or wind power has sometimes been unpredictable in terms of just dependent on the weather, these other sources will uh, reach in to fill the gap. But I do think we are still have this short time frame where it will continue to be a challenge where uh, politicians will continue to be uh, in negotiation also with the publics in terms of making us aware of how we can, can fulfill this uh, energy shortage and, and working together to, to making sure that there is stability in that arena. Thank you so much. And I would like to close this now by really giving a big applause virtually to our three speakers um, who have shared their insight with us and given us their time, which under these conditions, uh, it's eight o'clock, I think after eight o'clock on the East Coast. Thank you so much, everybody. And I will turn this over to Arabelle Leopold for some final words. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sabine, and also our three wonderful panelists, uh, Joyce and Sarah and Christiane. It was wonderful to have you. And I would actually love for all of us to get together in person um, next year and then do the same and reflect on one year after Merkel. I think that would be amazing to, we can all watch the recording of this talk before and then see what happened over the course of a year, hopefully in Seattle. Um, yeah, I would like to thank all of you. This was wonderful. Um, also to our audience, we had a large audience sticking um, all the time, staying, standing by, and um, we went a little over, but there was just so much to discuss. So thank you to all of you for, um, for joining today. Again, thank you to our partners once more, of course, the Center for West Europe studies represented by Sabine Lang, also Phil Line and Susanna Haley for all their work, and then also Department of German Studies represented by Sabine Wilke. It's always a pleasure. Um, last but not least, always want to thank um, our program assistant, Goethe Pop-Ups, Kendra Berry. Um, he's, she's always so helpful in, in, um, in get, making these events successful. So thank you so much, Kendra. Um, and I have to say, it's always easier to part and say goodbye if we have something to look forward to. So of course, next year we'll meet again. But meanwhile, we have a full October program at the Goethe Pop-Up and um, you will find the program on our website, but there's one specific event that I would like to highlight. And it's especially um, yeah, interesting today since it is the release date of Timothy Snyder's best-selling book on tyranny as a graphic edition. So his book takes um, the yeah, most important or darkest moments of 20th century history to teach 20 lessons on um, how to resist and survive modern day authoritarianism. So I think that's more important than ever. And the wonderful Nora Krug, the German illustrator, she did all the, um, the images in the book. So we will have both of them, we're very honored, we'll have both, both of them in a virtual talk on October 29th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. So please save the date. We'll present that again with the Center for West European Studies and the Department of German Studies and also the Elliott Bay Book Company. So you can um, register online and I hope to see all of you. We had wished to have Timothy Snyder and Nora Krug in Seattle, 
but alas, um, it's still strange. Uh, those times are still strange. So we're, um, we're, we're still very excited to have them virtual. So with that, um, I'd like to let all of you go into your firearms and um, thank you again to the panelists, our hosts, our partners, and of course, you, the audience. Thank you so much. See you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>